Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About Tree Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere else you can find a podcast. You can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreeview.com, which is where you can also find full links to the show notes and guests. On that website, you can also click on the support tab if you want to support the show and pick up something. That would be great. Follow the podcast on social media at About Tree Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, youtube.com slash About to Review. All right. On this jam-packed episode, there is a lot to get through. Uh, and again, I am running the show solo uh, this week. Next week, it will be back to having a guest. So I appreciate uh, all of you for sticking with me while I am in the studio alone. So sad. So alone. But I have you guys to keep me company, even though you're listening to this later than when I record it. But that is okay. We will get through this together. So yeah, a ton of geek news as well as reviews for How to Train Your Dragon 3, Fighting with My Family, and Greta. So before we get into that, we'll go to the original theme song created by Damian Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. First item in the geek news. So one of the surprise hits on Netflix uh, this past year was The Haunting of Hill House. Now, I was able to see the panel for the show at New York Comic Con last year with the cast, uh, with the whole cast, and they talked about it. We got a sneak preview of the first episode, and it was really cool, and I was excited for it, but also nervous because I was just not sure how, how it was going to translate into a show. This had been a movie like three different times, including a really terrible one with Catherine Zeta-Jones in the 90s. So I was just not sure. But it really impressed me. The things that they were able to technically pull off in that show, like a 12-minute steady cam shot or uncut scene, like incredible. So they just announced that season two uh, is actually going to be called The Haunting of Bly Manor, based on a different book. Now, as far as I know right now, they're not going to American Horror Story this and have the same cast, but in a different setting, which, okay, fool me once, American Horror Story, shame on me. Fool me twice. I mean, you cannot fool me twice. So that just got really old. And even though they added some other people like Lady Gaga later in the seasons, it was just weird. And it just, yeah, it, it was odd. So at this, they have not said, you know, they're going to completely different cast. All we know for now is Haunting of Bly Manor is based off of the Henry James book called The Turn of the Screw. So they're kind of using that as a loose template to go with, similar to how they did with Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. So I am all on board 
for this, even though I was not a huge fan of how they wrapped everything up in the series of season one, I'm totally on board for, for season two. I think it could be really interesting. Next bit, uh, there is a an actress. You might have heard about her. Her name is Dame Helen Mirren. Yes, that Helen Mirren. So she is really pushing for a category for the Oscars that I have been wanting for years. And I really hope that there is a bigger push for it. And I think with somebody like her pushing it, it might actually get some traction. So Dame Helen Mirren recently said that she really wants Oscars for stunt people, for stunt work. That would be amazing. It is something that we are kind of trying to get going in our local Seattle Film Critics Society, but especially in a year where we had films like Mission Impossible Fallout, there are some phenomenal stunt choreography that goes on in this film, in that film alone, along with a bunch of other ones. So absolutely, those people who are doing that work need to get recognized, and not just in kind of the technical Oscars or in their own award show. Like, give them the respect they deserve. Give them an Oscar. I think that would be incredible. I know professional stunt actors and the amount of work that they put into their craft is is like nothing else. So I am totally with Dame... Helen Mirren, and I, I would love to see a stunt category, um, or I think in, they call it action choreography in other award ceremonies. So phrase it however you want, but recognize, respect, and honor the stunt people. So hopefully that happens. Uh, another book series that is being turned into a TV show, I talked about Haunting of Hill House, which is based off a book, and then Haunting of Bly Manor. This other show is based off of a consistent book series as opposed to kind of the anthology style that they're doing with Haunting of Hill House. So Stranger Things director Uta Brysowitz, I may or may not have gotten that right. Sorry, Uta, if you are listening. She has been tapped to direct the first two episodes of a new TV show for Amazon based off of the Wheel of Time books. Now, for those of you who are wondering... What the Wheel of Time books are, uh, I am not even going to attempt to explain it. This is a long, long running series of books, fantasy epic from Robert Jordan that started in like the 80s. There were 14 books, I think a couple other like prequels that they did similar to Dune with Frank Herbert where they just started sliding some books in here and there. This is a massive amount of material to try and do for TV. And I have no idea if they're going to start from the very beginning, like uh, the eye of the world, or if they're going to kind of jump around. This is an insane amount of content in the, in this world building of the wheel of time. But Amazon is pushing forward, you know, with this fantasy epic series and with a director like Uta, who has done stranger things like, I think it really takes somebody for something like this to be successful. It takes somebody who is able to take content and build it into episodic TV. I mean, yes, we see things like with Game of Thrones, with Benioff and Weiss. That That is a different beast altogether. With the Wheel of Time, I think they can go a lot more of a grounded approach with this 
and not have that kind of high fantasy with dragons and other things, I think they can go a little bit more grounded with the Wheel of Time. But I am fascinated as to what they end up doing. I I just, I'm a sucker for fantasy, like high fantasy, kind of this... Wheel of Time had some like medieval fantasy mixed with some Asian philosophies, Eastern East Asian philosophies. That could be really interesting in how they build out this world. So Deadline has been reporting it that they hired Uta and they're moving forward. This is a show we will probably not see anything for, probably not even a trailer for like a year and a half, maybe two years. So when it happens... I'm down for it. It will give me time in two years to actually maybe get through all like 17 books. No guarantees because that is a lot. And I might start reading the Discworld series because I keep hearing that is really good. But regardless, Robert Jordan created a fantastic world that then was finished by a couple other authors after Robert Jordan passed away. So give me give me more epic fantasy, especially with Game of Thrones dropping off the air. I think this could definitely start to fill that that space. So, good for you, Uta. Hopefully the Wheel of Time keeps moving forward and we get to see something relatively soon. Uh, another show that is coming back for its second season is Altered Carbon. Now, this was another Netflix show that a lot of people... This was a, a kind of a tough divide. I rarely meet people who are like, yeah, you know, it was okay. There are some very extreme sides to Altered Carbon. There are some people who, from the jump, never liked it, never really gave it a chance, never finished it. There are other people who I have talked to, especially when I go to these cons, conventions, that watched it from beginning to end more than once. I definitely am am interested in it a lot. I like the world that they built quite a bit. And so they announced season two and they did the cast announcement in this really cool video. And I will link it below where they're basically showing these files, like this computer, uh, almost like a dossier, like a digital file of the people who are playing these characters. But the big news is Anthony Mackie is going to be playing Takeshi Kovacs this season. They have not said if they're going to be bringing in kind of the quote unquote real Takeshi Kovacs that we saw in certain flashbacks in season one with altered carbon because you have these sleeves that people can transfer their consciousness into it really opens up the world to whatever stories you want to tell so if they keep doing some flashback stuff or if they are just going to kind of leave that alone and continue with this story in a different time and place and direction we have yet to see. So Anthony Mackie is going to be Takeshi Kovacs. Simone Missick is going to be in this show as Trep. And then we do have a couple people returning from season one. So Renee Goldberry is coming back as Gilcrest or Quilcrest Falconer. And then uh, James Saito as Tanasida Hideki. So they are going to be bringing a little bit of that. I just do not know. In the first season of Altered Carbon... We definitely saw a lot of Renee Goldberry's character, both in flashbacks and also in some kind of monologues, which we were not sure if she was actually real or kind of what was happening with those lines. 
So season two, th- yeah, they, they have some interesting ways they can go, but I am on board. Again, another show that I'm excited for is Altered Carbon season two. I think it is going to be coming out next year. It just started production recently, and I actually uh, know somebody who is working on the show up in Vancouver, uh, Mayumi Yoshida, who I have talked to multiple times on the show and is a really good friend. So she is actually doing some dialect coaching with the Japanese-speaking parts. So excited for that. Ultra Carbon Season 2, probably, if this year, probably late this year, uh, but probably early 2020 would be my guess. Uh, John Krasinski. Another sequel news, or in other sequel news, announced in a very subtle way on Instagram that A Quiet Place 2 will be coming out May 15th, 2020. Talk about a sleeper hit. A Quiet Place for a first-time director like John Krasinski doing something like this, an ambitious project like this, working alongside with his, his wife, Emily Blunt, he crushed it. A Quiet Place, it made so much money. Last year, it was like $340 million globally on a very low-budget horror French or horror idea that is now becoming its own franchise. So they did say that Emily Blunt is possibly going to be returning for this. Who knows if they're going to be in the same location or if they're going to go to a different place that is now maybe taking a more offensive approach to the creatures or to the situation that the planet was kind of in at the time, as opposed to just surviving, I would be interested to see, yeah, if they decide to go and take the fight to the creatures somehow. We see little bits of that in A Quiet Place in the first one. Like, oh, you know, maybe these weapons work. Maybe these, uh, spoiler alert, none of them do. Because apparently... This is what the world is. So May 15th, 2020. I mean, yeah, so they're most likely going to be starting production here in the next few months. But being a low budget horror film, similar to like the Blumhouse films, this is the way to go. Like they put definitely some money into the visuals of the creature design. And when we actually start seeing the articulation and the body work that they do, that was where the money went. As far as everything else, really simple sets, really simple production design as far as kind of the world building, keep it tight, keep it simple, and put the money where it kind of needs to go in those visual pieces, and then let the story speak for itself. So definitely excited uh, for A Quiet Place 2 in 2020. Ending the news with a somber uh, note. So Stanley Donnan, or Donan. I probably should have looked that up as to which way in, which way it was pronounced. But Stanley, going to go with Donnan, uh, has passed away at the age of 94. You might not know the name, but he directed Singing in the Rain, which is easily in my top three favorite musicals of all time. Singing in the Rain is a gorgeous film, not just a musical, like flat out film. Sing of the Rain is phenomenal. So yeah, he directed that along with so many other films. Uh, one that one of my listeners is a huge fan of that was never high on my list, but Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is a bizarre movie. So bizarre. But I know some people really like it. He also did Funny Face, 
two for the road. So huge, huge life and career for Stanley Don. And he never actually got an Oscar for his films, but they did give him a lifetime achievement Oscar in 1998. So well-deserved Sing in the rain. I'm probably going to watch this weekend uh, in memory and out of respect for Stanley because his work is incredible and that movie is incredible. So definitely rest in peace to Stanley Donnan. Okay. Now into the movies. So the first movie on the docket is how to train your dragon, the hidden world, AKA how to train your dragon three, AKA the end of the how to train your dragon movie franchise. Now this franchise started back in 2010, then continued in 2014. And now this movie in the middle, there was a TV show that I think lasted for like six seasons which is crazy. It was initially supposed to just kind of bridge the gap between the first movie and the second movie and ended up being a huge hit. So they kept making more seasons of it. But How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World is directed by Dean the Dean DeBloy. Um, wait for somebody to correct me and be like, Dean, it actually is Dean DeBlois. Uh, who knows? Uh, somebody does. <laughs> he probably does. Sorry, Dean. Uh, so this one, is the penultimate chapter of the How to Train Your Dragon series. So it follows along with Hiccup and Toothless. Hiccup being the young Viking who's similar in other movies, just wants to do his own thing, does not really want to take up the responsibility, you know, that his dad wants him to do. Uh, Stoic, played by Gerard Butler. And I believe Gerard Butler's best performances are in these movies because this is the closest thing to his real accent. Like this is his real accent, but he exaggerates it a little bit because it is still animation. You have to give it a little bit something more, but in general, Gerard Butler has such a strong accent, but he is always almost trying to like mask it or do something different. So to hear him just go full on with his accent was great. The voice cast in these movies have always been incredible. So Jay Baruchel played plays Hiccup, America Ferreira as Astrid, Kate Blanchett uh, is a returning character from How to Train Your Dragon 2, Volca, Gerard Butler, Craig Ferguson, Jonah Hill, Kristen Wiig, Kit Harington, stacked deck when it comes to voice casting. So these movies take the trajectory of Hiccup when he first meets Toothless, the dragon, in the first movie, when at that time, the Viking village that he is from, uh, Burke, they're just dragon slayers. Dragons are a menace. Dragons are terrible. We just kill dragons. He, of course, befriends a dragon. Hilarity ensues. Adventures ensue. Then in the second one, we really see the other villagers embrace living with dragons and dragons being part of their life. The third one, they are now basically a dragon village. They're the sanctuary for all the dragons. That is kind of it. All of these movies have incredible animation, incredible voice casting. One of my knocks against these movies, which I love, I loved How to Train Your Dragon 1 and 2. They will always hold a special uh, part in my, in my heart because it just they hit me at the right time when these came out. And they're just a wonderfully crafted films. But one of my knocks on this is the themes 
with all three of these are very similar. So in the first one, you have kind of Hiccup overcoming the prejudices of his village, you know, and showing them the dragons can be nice. Second one, it was like, dragons are nice. There's a new place with dragons and a bad guy we need to figure out. Cool. Third one, dragons are really nice. There's another place with dragons and a bad guy. Okay? Like, how many pockets of these dragons that nobody had heard about exist? Because in all three of these movies, they just happen to find this huge conclave. Conclave? Is that the plural noun for dragons? Den of dragons? Sure. They find these, like, gigantic dens of dragons where there is a revelation, there, there's a big bad, there is conflict. And so, I mean, even though those themes are consistent, this one still kind of turns it up a little bit and do, goes a little bit of a different direction. But the villain in almost all of these, I feel, is is kind of the weakest part, which which is a shame because in this one, you have this character, you have these pirates that were kind of introduced in the second film, but they enlist the help of this mythical dragon slayer, uh, this like super creepy kind of druid type, but we never really get to know who he is. We never really get attached to him. We just know that he is so feared and so crazy, but we don't know why. And, I mean, we don't always need to know the villain's motivations because they're the villain. They're the bad guy. But this one, it was like, you kind of build this up and you know that you give us these scenes where people are like, oh, I know where that type of weapon comes from and nobody messes with him. And then we see how incredibly powerful this guy is. But we never know why he started doing what he was doing, why he was so against this particular type of dragon you know, which are, which are the Night Furies, which is toothless. We never get to know that. So in this one, though, not only is he wanting to find Toothless, you know, the last Night Fury, but there's also a Light Fury, the, this white dragon that has some camouflaging abilities and some pseudo-teleporting abilities. So again, we get this love story between these two dragons, which is amazing, this is coming from somebody who I, I said this on social media, like right after I saw the movie, I avoid romantic comedies. I avoid romance movies in general because it just is so just boring and cliche for the most part. That being said, this movie about two dragons falling in love nearly brought me to tears more than once. So we get this incredible story of the dragons falling in love of Hiccup and Astrid now kind of, you know, now that they are in their 20s, starting to realize like, okay, I need to lead the village now. Like this is now I cannot just go around and make maps and have adventures with Toothless. Now resp the responsibility of what I need to do has to take priority. So they're kind of battling that as well as the big bad, you know, as, the, you know, as much as the conflict itself is the external force of the villain they're still trying to figure out what their way of life truly is and the sacrifices that have to be made for that to be possible. So this movie definitely had a high bar for me going into it because of how much I love the first two. The cast, I mean, even though, yeah, a couple of the cast members got switched out when they did the TV show, but it still retained 
the feeling and the innocence of all of these characters, which have been with the series from the beginning, they grew. Like everything from the way that the actors changed their voice inflections from when the characters get first introduced in 2010, you know, in the first movie to now, you really feel that aging. You really feel that maturity of all of these characters, even in moments with Toothless where, you know, he is also kind of a rebellious teenager in a sense, but he has to grow. He has to mature. He has to then realize what sacrifices he has to make for the betterment of his life and his situation and his possibly family or his at least family of dragons. So overall, this movie is just super cute. Anybody who has liked the first two is going to like this one. Yes, the plot is very similar, but as far as a trilogy of movies, especially kid movies, these are solid. In certain animated movies, especially family-friendly animated movies, you can kind of have that beginning, middle, and end in one movie, and it works perfectly, and you do not really need too much more. A phenomenal example of that is Coco from last year. An absolutely beautiful film that we got everything we needed in that 90 minutes, you know, 90 minutes to two hour film with how to train your dragon. This series of three, three films, not counting the TV show. Cause that is a bridge to the gap, but not really counting that this really feels like it needed to have those three separate movies to accurately tell the story of the beginning, middle and end and where these characters needed to go. So that alone, putting together a trilogy of animated family films is is tough. And with the first two, they were both nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Spoiler alert, this one is going to be animated for the 2019. You heard it here first. It is February, and I'm already making my first Oscar prediction for next year. So, the official rating system for this podcast, there are only three choices. There are no letter grades, no stars. It is just good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something you would recommend to a friend. A bad film is something that you did not really, you know, dislike too much, but it would not be something that as soon as you came out of the theater, you were like, you gotta see this. And an ugly, avoid at all costs. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, aka How to Train Your Dragon 3, directed by, directed by Dean DeBlois, absolutely gets a good. I love this film. It is super cheesy, super schmaltzy, but everything felt real. Like these are characters that we have seen now grow up, you know, since they were kids in the first movie. And now they're in their 20s and even a little bit older, you know, than that. When you get a little bit later in the movie, phenomenal film. I, I just I loved this movie. So this gets a good from me. Next film, Fighting With My Family. Directed by Stephen Merchant. Uh, this is a movie that I went into not knowing anything about. This film, Fighting With My Family, is based off of the documentary that came out in 2012 called The Wrestlers, Fighting With My Family, which that documentary was directed by Max Fisher. And this is about the, the real-life story of the wrestler whose name or wrestling name is Paige, a.k.a. Soraya Jade Bevis. So she is an English wrestler, comes from an, an English wrestling family, and this is about her kind of journey to get to the big show, 
to get to the WWE, which her and her brother and her whole family, you know, have these aspirations to go to. As with any kind of smaller organi- wrestling organization, you want to get to the big time. Just like any sports, you want to play for the NFL, MLB, NBA. If you are a small local town, like local wrestler, sure, in the back of your head, you're like, that would be my goal someday. So this is her journey. And as my listeners know, I do not know much about wrestling. Um, I know more about wrestling from like the early 90s only because that, that was when they're putting a lot of ads in comic books. So I know the pictures, but not the stories. So when I came into this movie, Fighting With My Family, I really, I had no idea kind of who she was, when this movie was supposed to be taking place, what her track was, like if she was still wrestling, if she retired, no idea. Now that being said, to me, because I did not know anything, I needed a little bit more context in this film as far as when it took place. There were times in the movie where I was just not sure. Like, I recognized the wrestlers. I mean, there was uh, the big show in one scene. The Miz was in another scene. But then when I started doing some research, I was like, okay, when she first started, it was like 2014. But it was just, I I needed, or not like 2011, actually. Now that I look at it again, she signed a contract with WWE you know, like doing like the kind of the farm team, the NXT. I know Tim and Damien are so mad at me right now uh, because I do not know this. But so she started with kind of the, the farm league, you know, to kind of build yourself up to the WWE. But watching this film, I needed some years, like even if it was just 2011 at the bottom. And then we see some kind of montages, her montages of her training and, you know, getting together with Vince Vaughn, who is the coach you know, of this group of young wrestlers that he is trying to mold to become WWE, you know, main roster wrestlers. So I I need a little bit more of that. But that being said, uh, so this stars, uh, let me pull up her name. Oh yeah, Florence. Oh man, see again, I P-U-G-H, Florence Pugue? Yes, nailed it. Uh, And of course, Dwayne Johnson produced this film. And that was also confusing because in the movie, he looks like he does now. But I was like, but when was this supposed to take place? And I am confused. Uh, Nick Frost and Lena Hetty are her parents. And Jack Loden is her brother, Zach. So we get this family of English wrestlers who has been running their wrestling school and putting on local family shows for a long time. Like, this is like a second or third generational wrestling family. They finally get the call after sending in tapes after tapes after tapes to WWE that they're doing an open kind of casting and they want Soraya and Zach to show up and try out to be part of this, this situation, this new group of wrestlers. So, as a, I mean, you see this in the trailer. So, again, not spoiling anything. So only one of them gets chosen, and that is Soraya. So then she has this immediate conflict of like, do I go and pursue my dream, or do I stay here with my family? Because only one of us got in between me and my brother. So she ends up going to the camp to train, 
Vince Vaughn, I was initially kind of worried about Vince Vaughn's character because it reminded me immediately of Dodgeball. Because here he is, this kind of like older, wiser coach trying to help out these young whippersnappers. And I was worried that it would kind of delve too much into that character archetype. But it did not. Like, it actually, he stayed, like, the, the tribute to Vince Vaughn, like, he stayed at a level and did not really go into any sort of comedic bits and almost was just mean, but I mean, maybe not mean. Mean is not the right word because he was not malicious. He was just very deadpan and honest when she would be talking about her brother and being like, hey, really give another chance. Do this, do that. And he was like, no, like he is not good enough. We're looking for the best. You made it. And out of thousands of people, you have your shot right now. He does not. He needs to come to grips with that because I already did. So that kind of that bluntness was was harsh at times. But you could tell that he actually cared, you know, about these young wrestlers and cared about where they could go in their career. So as we see the story progress through her training and the somewhat ridiculous kind of montages of of the workout routines, we get to know this this young woman you know, Soraya, and we start to understand that, like, even though this is what she has essentially been training her life for, she starts to wonder what she is there for. Like, is it really her dream or that somebody else's and that she would just kind of thrust into it? So really good performances. It does get super cheesy as well, but the authenticity of the performances definitely helps that through. Nick Frost and Lena Headey are great in this. Nick Frost is somebody who, I mean, I have been watching his stuff forever since Spaced, the old TV show, Simon Pegg. He is somebody where as soon as he is on screen, I want to laugh because he is just hilarious. This one, as funny as he was, it did not take away from the seriousness of the decisions he was trying to make just to put food on the table for his family. And he, you know, was kind of letting her know that, Soraya that, letting Soraya know, I understand how hard this is. This is, this is what needs to happen. So Lena Headey was great as just kind of this punk rocker, former slash current wrestler, Julia. So overall the cast was solid. And that was something where with a movie like this, that was based off a documentary and could very easily have gone, because this is a WWE production, very easily could have just gone into a promotion where it was just like, hey, here's this movie about this wrestler, go watch wrestling. It really was just a, a story about family and struggles that they go through. Um, I think that was about it for, for my notes. I mean, like I said before, I went in knowing nothing about the story. I left also kind of not knowing anything as for when this was and if she was retired, like it, I don't know. Like I feel like that was still a piece that was missing. Now what it did though, with a biopic that I'm always getting on biopics for that, that upsets me, it did re have really nice, uh, during the credits, real footage of her family, real footage of her wrestling match that we see a version of in the movie Seeing her real family, and then after seeing, you know, the 90 minutes of the fake family, they nailed it. Like, Nick Frost, Lena Headey, the whole family cast 
looked, sounded very similar to the real life people. And that was great. That was just great to see, to recognize like, okay, like they, they did their homework. They got it right. Uh, but yeah, maybe I just, for me at least, I could have used a little bit more information about the real events and the real people and just the timelines. But that is my own thing, just going into it not knowing anything about this world in general. So my official rating for fighting with my family, uh, it is schmaltzy. It gets a good. Uh, it is something where I might not think too highly of this, you know, days later, a week later. But while I watched it, I was entertained. There were some good, authentic performances. The wrestling in it was actually pretty solid. Like, I was impressed with, I mean, there were some quick cutaways when it came to some of the harder maneuvers. But in general, like, the actors who were doing the wrestling, props to them. So, that was solid. So, yeah, it gets a good. Uh, I think, yeah, if you are a wrestling fan, you already kind of know this story. But I still, I, I would like to talk to people who have seen the movie who also know the story to see kind of how it lines up. And to see what their thoughts on it. So, definitely hit me up on social media and we can talk about that because... I know nothing about the WWE world. Barely anything. All right. The last film uh, on the docket as far as new releases is Greta. Directed by Oscar winner Neil Jordan. He won an Oscar for The Crying Game uh, way back in the day. Greta stars Chloe Grace Moretz and Isabelle Huppert uh, in a <laughs> what I wrote down as single white female with a maternal twist. Single white female, of course, referring to the movie from the 90s that came out around the same time as The Crying Game. So this movie stars Chloe as she, this is straight from IMDb, very simple plot synopsis. A young woman befriends a lonely widow who's harboring a dark and deadly agenda towards her. Yep, that is about it. So Chloe's character... Uh, whose name is Greta, or no, whose name is Francis, Isabel Huppert is Greta, uh, Francis finds a purse on the New York subway and decides to follow up with the person and take it home and return it to the rightful owner. She does that, but then, of course, starts uh, caring for this woman who she gave it to, and this woman has secrets, and then Francis starts realizing this woman is crazy is texting her at all hours, is calling her at all hours, is showing up at her job, is just watching her from across the street. This woman is stalking her, like legitimately stalking her and making her life miserable. Francis then goes through all of these emotions of how is she going to get rid of this woman? How is she going to do this and that? She ends up, and this, I mean, I won't like give away huge plot points, but she does end up essentially getting captured or falling into a trap of, of Greta's. As Greta starts kind of playing out these other fantasies, fantasies she has of caring for somebody and making sure that Francis, like, she just, she loves her and she wants to care for her. No, she is crazy. Legitimately cuckoo crazy. The whole time this movie was going on, this is a 90-minute movie, and of course, it has shades of movies like Misery with Kathy Bates and James Caan, where somebody just, they want to love you so much and also hold you captive. One of the huge issues I had with this movie, unlike Misery or Kiss the Girls 
or The Cell or any of these movies where somebody is either kidnapped or somebody is taken to a remote, isolated area where even if they were to escape, nobody is around to help them. This movie takes place in Brooklyn. Like, what? And, well, parts of Brooklyn. Like, she, Chloe lives in, or Francis, lives in Manhattan with her roommate, uh, Erica, but then we see them crossing the Brooklyn Bridge, so not quite sure where Greta actually lives, but regardless, when crazy stuff starts happening, this is still New York City, and this is still an old lady in Isabelle Huppert. Yes, not too old, you know, in case anybody gets offended in ageism, but she is an older woman. This, I mean, again, it, with Misery as another example, or as the example again, when Kathy Bates wants James Conn to stay there with her and write this book, she breaks his ankles. Spoiler alert for a movie that came out like 30 years ago. She makes sure that he cannot leave and that she, that he is dependent on her. Francis in this movie, when faced with similar situations, just makes dumb choices. For 90 minutes, this movie basically boils down to dumb people making dumb choices. And only some of those dumb choices become interesting. And I think that is where my problem lies with this movie. As friend of the podcast uh, and one of my best friends, Tim Hall, the People's Critic, is always talking about in horror movies, you need people to make dumb choices. You, you kind of you need that kind of uh, moment to either rally against them or something. It needs to push the action forward. Sure. When those dumb moments are interesting, it gives you some leeway. This one, the dumb choices that are made are so dumb, it was comical. And I say that because people were literally laughing in the theater watching this movie. That is not a good sign when you make a suspense horror... I will not even call this a horror movie. When you make a suspense thriller. People should not be laughing at the scene where it is supposed to be this big reveal or this big emotional moment. Yeah, that is not a good look. There were times when the, the way out, the actual escape route, is very, very obvious. And nothing happens. That is insane. When you take those other movies that I mentioned, Kiss the Girls, The Cell, Misery, if an opportunity presented itself for that person to leave, they took it, or at least tried to take it. It's either whether they succeeded or not is, is one thing. The multiple times opportunities presented themselves to be done with this situation and nothing happened... It, it, just, it blew my mind that Chloe or Francis made those choices. And again, if she was from like Middleton, Ohio or Nowheresville, Kansas, and she was a new, like, you know, a farm girl in the big city and she just wants to trust people. Sure. Okay. Willing suspension of disbelief. She is from Boston. She says that in the movie. She was like, oh, I just moved here from Boston. Boston is a big city. One of the biggest cities in the country. Yet she has like this kind of Farmville mentality of everybody is great and everybody is good natured and I should trust everybody. No, man, you're in New York City. Like New York City will eat you alive. And it nearly does. 
You know, in this film, not actually. If anybody was wondering, there's cannibalism in here, cannibalism in this movie. But it was just that that was really hard for me to get over and to be kind of inundated in this world and transfixed when there were just so many moments that took me out of it. So many moments where the solution presents itself. There's kind of an, an old, not an old, but like a, a way to look at these movies where it's called the post-it note solution. If your entire movie's premise and the resolution can be resolved on a post-it note, you failed. And with this movie, it was just, there were, I counted at least three times when the situation could have been resolved. Done, movie over, resolution not needed, done. Yet it kept going on for another 45 minutes. So, and then it has the audacity to at least attempt or lay the groundwork for some sort of sequel. What are you doing? Come on now, Greta. That It was just, and it was ham-fisted, and it was weird, and it was one of those moments in the film where when that thing is happening, when the resolution, when a resolution, I should say, is kind of going through its motions, the characters have this meaningless, dumb dialogue that the entire theater is laughing at. So, yeah. Uh, the, the characters themselves, so Isabelle Huppert, is great. Like, she is consistent in her insanity, and she has these fantastic, subtle moments where she would go from kind of the, the nice old lady, older lady, and smiling... And then would take like a sip of her tears. And the way that her eyes would shift to just uh, just malice and manipulation. Those were great. Like those subtle moments were great. And Chloe, to her credit, she has fantastic fear eyes. Like when she gets terrified in this movie and her eyes go big, that is captivating. Like the, the, the look, the physical look that she has is captivating enough to pull you in. But then the actions that she does and the words that she says and so many other things immediately take away from what could have been a really solid performance. So we get some moments of intense action in this 90-minute movie, but man, are they few and far between, and man, did they get frustrating. So... Yeah, so that, that that wraps it up for Greta. My official rating, this is bad. It is not an ugly because there are some good performances in the movie. Like I said, Isabel and Chloe have their moments. Like, were they, were they really great? I would love to see Chloe in kind of more of these suspense style roles because she has a, I mean, first of all, she is a great actress. I like a lot of what she has done, but her physical look. How they used to talk about in horror movies the scream queens because they had these incredible voices. Chloe has an incredible look for these types of movies. So I would be interested if she did more of these. Isabel Huppert, I mean, her her resume speaks for itself. She is incredible. The rest of the movie, like her roommate, uh, Erica, played by Maika Monroe, is just kind of just vapid and pointless and we get nothing as far as her backstory or where she comes from, other than she is a trust fund kid whose dad bought her this condo in Manhattan. That is it. We literally do not get anything else from her. Uh, her dad in this is Colm, Colm Fiore, uh, who plays Chris McCullen. He is in this 
for really weird moments. And again, his whole character could just be a phone call. Maybe three phone calls throughout the movie. Because we never really get a resolution with him. It is bizarre. This movie is all over the map. It is bad. Um, Maybe on Netflix in a couple months, you know, check this out. But there is zero reason to rush out and see Greta. All right. So, a recap of the reviews. How to Train Your Dragon 3, a.k.a. How to Train Your Dragon The Hidden World. Phenomenal. Absolutely loved that movie. Incredible animation. Like, down to the peach fuzz on Hiccup's face. Like, when he was first starting to kind of grow a beard, it is it is incredible. Uh, the hair on all of the characters, is, like, it is spotless. Like, there is not a moment of animation that you could tweak to make this better. So, incredible animation, great performances. It gets a good, I loved that movie. Fighting with My Family, uh, directed by Stephen Merchant. Who Stephen Merchant, first of all, is another person that I have been a huge fan of uh, forever. When he did like the Ricky Gervais show, uh, the podcast way back in the day when podcasting was first starting. So that I, I gave a good to also because it just I enjoyed it. I just wish I had a little bit more uh, for me to chew on, not knowing the story. I think the movie is kind of banking on the people going to see this movie already know the story. I did not, so I need a little bit of kind of uh, hand-holding to give me some of those context clues. And then finally, Greta gets a bad... The movie is just dumb. Dumb people making dumb choices for 90 minutes. Dumb, uninteresting choices is how I would, uh, yeah, go with that one. So as for upcoming things for the About to Interview podcast, so next week's episode, Tim Hall, the People's Critic, will be back in studio... And we will be talking about Captain Marvel, which we are seeing at an undisclosed location at an undisclosed time. Uh, But the review will be coming out before Captain Marvel is released in theater. So definitely want to check that out. And then also next week, there will be an about to interview episode with the directors and the producer of a film that was shot here locally called Prospect, which starred Pedro Pascal, Sophie Thatcher, came out last year. And it hits VOD real soon. So that will be coming up for this podcast. Make sure to subscribe. Of course, you can get all of the episodes. It is on your podcast platform of choice. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere else. Stream the episodes directly from the website aboutreview.com, which is where you can also support the show by clicking the support tab. Follow the podcast on social media at About Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram youtube.com slash about to review that wraps it up for this week's episode thank you so much for listening your support means everything to me there are also going to be some exciting announcements coming up for other projects that i have going on with atr media so definitely uh, stay tuned for all of those so for this episode of the about to review podcast i've been your host as always that guy named john thank you for listening and we will see you next time Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.